Let's all stand together. Uh, we're in the book of Ephesians today. I know you're wondering, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. We are taking just a, a break from our Start Here series, and I do believe that God has a word for us today. The Bible says, beginning in verse 8, Ephesians, which is, by the way, in the New Testament, Ephesians, one of Paul's epistles, chapter 5. I'm not just being a smart aleck. Some of you might be sincerely wondering, and that's all right. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Right? That's what we should be doing, finding out not what is acceptable to us, but what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship or communion with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Check this out. Therefore, he says. You guys got this memorized, right? <laughs> Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And Father, we pray today that, that God, you would speak to us. God, we need a word straight from heaven. We need a word straight from heaven that is going to pierce our hearts. For God, we confess that oftentimes we are slumbering. God, we are sleeping. We are unconscious to the realities, the spiritual realities of the world around us. God, sometimes even as believers, we can find ourselves anesthetized. God, numbed. To you. And Father, we, we fear that. God, we don't want to live to that. You, we need you, God, to awaken us. God, we, we want a divine shaking in our lives that will shake us to the core. And God, that would cause us to be alive to you. And so, Father, we pray, fill this place. God, and give us hearts that are tender to receive the word that you have for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, awakening, and, and I know that, I know for some of us, when I say awakening, we may not necessarily know what awakening means. And so I want to give you uh, my perspective on what a real spiritual awakening is. I believe that in awakening is when God brings to the power of his Holy Spirit and his gospel a spiritual reviving or resurrecting in a person's life which leads to a wide-scale spiritual revolution. All right, uh, an awakening is something that is a unique work of God. It is absolutely divine in every way. That's why this definition begins with when God brings. Man can't manufacture it. Humanity can't create it. The best efforts of a church will never produce it. It has to be God. It is when God, through the power of his Holy Spirit and, and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that the gospel is powerful? Paul said in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. In other words, for anybody... Anybody who would come, the gospel has power to save you. So God 
brings through the power of his Holy Spirit and his gospel a spiritual reviving or resurrecting in a person's life. It may be one of these two particular things that I'll explain in just a minute. And what happens is God takes that small thing, not small in the sense of value, but small in the sense of scale. God takes that small thing and he births from it a wide-scale spiritual revolution. A wide-scale spiritual revolution. Now listen, you might be thinking today, well, wait wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. Are, are we always supposed to be living in a condition where we are spiritually awakened? And the answer to that is yes, but the reality is we don't. We should always be spiritually awakened. But the fact is this, God's people go through periods of spiritual renewal and spiritual decline. God's people go through, and you see this not just in the church, in the history of the church for 2,000 years, but you also see this in ancient Israel, that they're, you know, because we just are, we just are drawn to the flesh, because we by nature are spiritually complacent. You know, there are times where there's a great reviving work of God, and it is widespread in scale. It is absolutely amazing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And there's this undeniable work of God that in itself is a sign and wonder and miracle. And then inevitably, like inevitably, there hasn't been a time in church history where this hasn't happened. It is followed by spiritual decline. I think from the Old Testament perspective, this is clearest in the book of Judges. And if you're familiar with the nation of Israel and their ebbs and flows in their relationship with God, you know this to be true. But as you look at the book of Judges, what you see is this cycle. You see this cycle that the nation of Israel went through. There were moments of great spiritual fervor where they sought God, they depended on God, they lived for God. God was the epicenter of the nation and also the Israelite, and he was priority, right? He took priority. He wasn't number two or number three. He wasn't somewhere down, you know, the rung on the ladder. He was, he was the priority. The, he was the epicenter. Everything orbited around God. And then inevitably what happened, the nation sank into, sunk into, sank into, they were sinking into, however you conjugate it. They, they sank into spiritual complacency. They, they, their trajectory was not moving upwards towards God. They were influenced by the worldliness around them. They were affected by the godly nations that surrounded them. And ultimately, they had leaders who misled them. You know, the, the phrase that you see time and time again in Judges, after this great spiritual work of God, is this, is this statement. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are foreign false gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods. Now, as you read the book of Judges, this is what you discover. Israel does this, right? They hit rock bottom. They hit rock bottom. And as they hit rock bottom, what God does, because God is a jealous God, because God loves his people, because God doesn't want you to remain, didn't want them to remain in a condition of spiritual complacency or slumber, what he did is he corrected them. He brought famine, he brought pestilence, he brought adversity. Listen, he brought his word through the prophets. Some of you today, you're like, man, I wish I could be an Old Testament prophet. Really? Really? 
Because let me tell you something, when Israel was wayward in their relationship with God, you know what they did to the prophets? They stoned them. They stoned them. Because the prophets had a message that was uncomfortable for the wayward Israelite to hear. And you know what? They didn't want to hear it because they had the machinery of religion. And to acknowledge what the prophet was saying would have to simultaneously also, they would have to acknowledge that everything that they were doing was fueled by the power of man. And they don't want to stop that car from going. So what did they do? They silenced the prophets. Well, ultimately what would happen in this condition of correction, in this place where God had them as they hit rock bottom, they would be awakened to their need for God. And they would cry out to God. And what would God do? Well, God would raise up a leader. And like Gideon, right? God would raise up a leader, a divinely appointed leader. And through that leader, there would come a great spiritual reviving of the people of God. And there would be great miracles that God would do that were absolutely undeniable. And once again, what you see, at least in the book of Judges, historically for ancient Israel, was another period of time where there was this great movement towards the Lord, only to be followed by another season of spiritual complacency. I think that this is what Paul is addressing in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. I think Paul is addressing, and I'll talk about this in a minute, I think Paul is looking at the church of Ephesus and he knows that that church, the context of that church is it is lodged in one of the most ungodly cities in the ancient world. And it would seem, as Paul is like laying out a series of exhortations, it would seem that Paul is recognizing that, that their trajectory may be off a little bit. It may be that they were heading in towards some spiritual complacency, some spiritual slumber. And so Paul gives them a strong word. Because listen, as much as we say that we want to see God move in a mighty way in our nation, are we willing to also acknowledge that that work that we so desire starts right here in his church? Right? Did you know that? You know, I can sit here and say all day, long to you, hey, we, we're, we're for God saving the lost. We want to see an awakening among lost souls in our nation. Are you for that? Do you want to see that happen? Do you want to see it happen? How bad do you want to see it happen? Let me tell you what has to happen before that. We have to be awakened. This is the pattern of God's work amongst a people. What does he do? First, he awakens his people, and then through his awakened people, he resurrects the spiritually dead. I, I want you to, this is my view on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, because you know, Paul says this, therefore he says, well, he, who he? Who is the he he's talking about? He's talking about God. Therefore, God says, God says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. Well, what verse does that come from? Probably Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. And I want you to check this out today because I think it's telling as we're talking about an awakening. God speaks this over his children, the nation of Israel, but I believe he speaks it over your life today as well. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Man, isn't that awesome? Can you, can you receive that in Jesus' name today? For your, light has come, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. 
man, that is so solid, it's so good. Don't, don't read the next sentence, okay? Because let me just say, the first piece, the first real piece of a, a widespread spiritual re revolution that is fueled by the power of God is this, that the glory of God will be upon his people, the glory of God will be upon his people, that they will have arisen, that they will be shining for him. And listen, when that happens, check out what follows. The Gentile shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So, so listen, in other words, this is, a, this is a biblical principle. It is absolutely undeniable. And it is borne out in the history of Israel and the church. When the people of God are living to God like they should... When the glory of God is evident and manifested upon them because they are spiritually awakened to him, the consequence of that is a widespread move of God's Holy Spirit in resurrecting spiritually dead people to life. So, so let's just look at that for a minute, okay? In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, from eight, verses 8 to 14, we're talking about two things. We're talking about a spiritual reviving, like I said, and we're talking about a spiritual resurrecting. Now, I just want to say to you, there are those commentators, as they read these verses, they'll say, hey, well, listen, Paul is dealing directly with sleeping Christians alone. That really is, those people are the target of his message. And then there are others who say, no, Paul is dealing really with the unconverted who need to be spiritually raised from the dead. And I would say to you today, I don't think it's an either or situation. I believe it to be both and. I believe Paul in these verses is dealing not just with the sleeping Christian. He's dealing with those who are unconverted. Check out what he says here just in verse 14. He says, awake you who sleep. Awake you who sleep. Paul is saying that the, there needs to be a spiritual reviving of the sleeping Christian. Somebody who needs to be awakened from their sleep has already been raised from the dead. They've already been enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, in the context of what Paul is saying here, he's drawn a sharp contrast between their former life and their present life. They were once darkness. Now listen, Paul doesn't say uh, you were once living in darkness. He says you were once darkness. You were separated from God. You were children of wrath. You were sons and daughters of disobedience. You were on the devil's side. Okay, you were on the devil's side. But what did God do? God in his grace conveyed you out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son who is the object of the father's love. God did that work. He took you out of a place of darkness and he placed you in a place of light. God took you from being darkness and God has made you light in the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that awesome news? And it may be for this church, it may be for this church that as the apostle and the pastor of this particular church is considering their spiritual trajectory, he's concerned that they may be drifting into sleep. They may be drifting into this, this area that really does not exist, but we, we make believe like it does, this gray area. I want to tell you today, as we look at this scripture, it is clear that for the Christian, there are no shades of gray. For the Christian, there are no shades of gray. Living in this supposed gray area, you'll never be able to please God because fundamentally, it does not exist. The church of Ephesus seemed to be 
heavily influenced by the world, maybe to the place where it was starting to look like the world. And so it might be that Paul, as he's making this strong exhortation, is saying to them, hey, sleeping Christian, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. You know, I think it's such, a, I think it's such an appropriate metaphor for spiritual slumber, physically sleeping. You know, and I just want to draw some... Um, I want to draw some correlations, right? When you're asleep, I mean, for really, for the most part, when you're asleep, you don't know you're sleeping. I mean, every day we plan to go to sleep, and so we're not surprised when we wake up because we, we had planned to go to sleep. But for some of you older people here today, there are times where you fall asleep and you never planned it, right? <laughs> you just didn't plan it. And then all of a sudden, someone wakes you up. You're like, oh, man, I didn't realize I fell asleep. <laughs> And, and, and listen, even if you do plan to fall asleep, when you're sleeping, you don't know you're asleep. You're not aware of it. And the truth is this, there are Christians who are asleep in this room right now. There are Christians who are asleep in this room right now. Look, you, you, you think everything's all right, but the reality is this, you have sunk into a spiritual slumber and you don't even know it. You say, Pastor, how can you know so much about spiritual sleep? Because I've been there. I've been there. Like, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at you today as if you're any different than I am. The reality is this. There have been moments in my life where I've been spiritually sleeping, and I didn't realize it until God woke me up, until the Lord woke me up. And you know what? He does that because he loves us. He doesn't cast us away in his failure. He draws us to his heart with bands of love. You know, it's a dangerous place to be when you are spiritually sleeping because you don't even know it yourself. In addition to that, just like when you sleep, you're unconscious to the real world, like you're in a dead sleep. Some of you, there could be a raging earthquake happening. Someone could be kicking down your front door and stealing your television, and you just, man, you sleep so hard, you can sleep through anything, right? You are totally unconscious to the real world around you. And in a spiritual sense, when we are slumbering spiritually, when we have slipped into that that spiritual sleepiness, we are unconscious to the things of God. We're unconscious to the things of God. We go through our life and we get to the end of a day and we evaluate our day. And our, the evaluation of our day is all centered around our comfort. What felt good, what didn't feel good. What was easy, what wasn't easy. Well, you know what, I had a really bad day today because I got a flat tire and, and you know, that was really miserable and then AAA never showed up and then I was shaving my bald head and I cut my head and... <laughs> You know, I did that just for you guys today for, for the illustration because I, I sacrificed that way. But you get to the end of the day and it's like, man, you've got this litany of things that you're all torqued about and upset about. And it's like, well, what about the, what about the souls that were going to hell? What about the 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 people that God placed in your path today that you're not even concerned about? You're not even concerned about. You're just mad because you got a flat tire. You're just mad because it won't stop bleeding. And God's like, wait a minute, you're missing the bigger thing. You're missing the bigger thing. There were all of these opportunities for you to reach into someone's life and make a difference eternally, and you missed it because you're sleeping. You're unconscious to the things that really matter. You know, when you sleep, you can do things that give an appearance that you're awake. Some of you talk in your sleep. <laughs> Some of you walk in your sleep. Like you wake up in a different room. You're like, what the heck? How, how did I get here? This is not good. Then you don't even know it. 
You don't even know when you're talking in your sleep or what, but you, you, there's all of these evidences that you might be awake. And the truth is this, this is your religious life. This is your religious life. You roll into church and you sing a song and you open a book and you stand and reiterate what the Bible says, but the fact is you are totally asleep. You are sleeping. You raise hands supposedly to God, but you're really thinking about what you're wearing and how you look and what other people think about you. And the truth is this, you're walking through these motions and everyone around you might think, man, that person's right on, that person's awake. And the truth is, you're totally asleep and it's nothing more than religious ritual. It's nothing more than religious, religious ritual. You walk in the room and you sit once again for another 50-minute teaching by someone who doesn't always even make sense, right? <laughs> and, and you never even say, God, what's your word for my heart today? God, what do you have for me? God, what do I need to change? God, I believe that you're even greater than this human being who has a hard time communicating. God, even through, even through Balaam's jackass you can speak. And so, God, I know it was donkey or jackass, and I picked jackass, all right? And if God, you can speak through that, you can speak through this man or this woman, whoever it might be. God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? How can you transform and change my life? Listen, when we're sleeping, it's all about comfort. We got our white noise, we've got our fan rolling, we've got our most snuggly blanket that we have. And I'm telling you, we are annoyed. We are annoyed by anything that interrupts our sleep. We're annoyed. How many of you guys actually love your alarm when it goes off in the morning? No, you are beating that thing down, right? How many times can you hit snooze? That thing is an absolute annoyance to you. Why? Because you love your place of comfort. And yet we as Christians oftentimes are picking preachers that preach lullabies to us because we want to stay in this place of comfort and sleep. We don't, we don't want that preacher. We don't want the preacher that's gonna be like a blaring alarm that says, hey, hey, you're sleeping, hey, you're sleeping, wake up, it's time to wake up. No, we wanna slap that guy. We wanna shut him off. We want someone who's gonna reinforce us in our lukewarmness, in our lukewarm lifestyle, and say to us, peace and safety, when it's not peace and safety. Somebody who's gonna say, hey, you can rest and, and find ease in this moment, and the fact is this, you are far from God. That's what happens when we're spiritually sleeping. I think about Christ and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and it's no different, right? Christ is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating great drops of blood, and his disciples are totally asleep, completely unconscious to the reality that's happening right there in that moment. And the truth is this, the Son of God sits at the right hand of God and lives to make intercession for those who come to him in faith, and we are asleep to it. He is laboring before the throne of God. He, that's what intercession is. He is laboring before the throne of God. And we are totally asleep to his divine purpose on this planet. For us, as we're sleeping Christians, it's just about how we can make our own life a little bit better. God help us. What is the word? What is the word to the sleeping Christian? It is wake up. It is wake up. Now is the time to awaken from our slumber. It is the awakened Christian that leads her neighbor to Jesus. It is the awakened Christian that sells his goods and takes the call for world missions. It is the awakened Christian that is a firebrand for the truth in a culture of relativism. 
It is the awakened Christian that bears the burden of God for a spiritual revolution, for a great awakening. God is speaking to his church today, and he is seeking to spiritually revive those who are asleep. But that's not all that he is doing through this word. He seeks to also bring spiritual resurrection to the unconverted. He also seeks to bring spiritual resurrection to the unconverted. This is why he says, arise from the dead. He says, arise from the dead. Why does he say, arise from the dead? Well, he says it because apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are born spiritually dead. I was born spiritually dead. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead to God. Do you understand that? We are dead to God. Doesn't matter how nice you may be, how moral you may be, doesn't matter how many times you go to church, doesn't matter how much money you give, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are dead to God, you are condemned under the weight of the unforgiveness of your sins. There is an eternal chasm between you and God. There is an unscalable wall that has been built by your own behavior and actions. And it is the same as me. And there's no stairway that goes all the way up to heaven that you can build for yourself. There's only one mediator between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And as you live today condemned under the weight of unforgiven sin, you are destined for an eternity to hell. But God wants to pull you out of that. God wants to not only save you to heaven, he wants to save you from hell. Today the word for you is this, rise up. Come to the cross of Christ. Cast yourself wholly and completely on his, on his finished work. Deny the tendency to depend or to rely upon yourself to bring any good thing to God because there is nothing good within ourselves that we can do to merit favor in the eyes of God. His word to you today is to rise up because Christ wants to say to you the same words that he said to Lazarus who had been, did, who had been dead and buried in that tomb for four days. He said, come forth. Lazarus come forth and that dead decaying body was revived by the power of Jesus Christ and the man came forth and he said unwrap him, unwrap him and this is what he can do for you today. He can unwrap you from your sin. He can unwrap you from your iniquity and your foolishness. The truth today is this, you have tied your life up in knots and the only one who can undo your mess is God. Today he says to you, rise up. Today he says to you, come forth. Today he says to you, Talitha Kumi, which is what he said to the synagogue ruler's daughter. As he was there by her bedside, she had died and he said, Talitha Kumi. He said, little girl, arise. Little girl, arise. Man, could there have been tenderer, more gentle words spoken to this little girl in this moment? An expression of love for all to hear and to see as the miraculous power of Christ was manifested and that girl stood up. Little girl, I want to say to you today, whoever you might be, whatever you have gone through, whatever you've been victimized by, whatever stone feels like it has been rolled over your life and is pressing down upon you. He says, rise to you today. Rise, he calls you by name. He calls you by name. Listen, it's when, it is when these 
things begin to happen. When there is a spiritual reviving of the sleeping Christian and a spiritual resurrection of the spiritual, spiritually dead, he takes those things that begin on a small scale and he breathes like, em- like, like embers upon them in such a way that it leads to a widespread spiritual awakening. I don't know if you know this today, but there have been four great awakenings in our nation And they're unprecedented moves of God's Holy Spirit, right? I mean, you can look back on the history of the, of not just the church, but you can look back on the history of the nation. And and it doesn't matter what secular historical source you use, they will all mention these great awakenings because they had profound, unparalleled impact on the culture. The first great awakening was in 1740. And I'm going to share some history with you today because when you hear when you hear what God did in the past it should inspire you for what God can do in the present right 1740 there were two individuals mostly known for this particular awakening it was the first great awakening in our nation Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield it was during the age of enlightenment and this may feel familiar to you. At this point in time in our nation's history, there was an emphasis on science and reason that led to a disregard of faith in God. In other words, people were so focused on science and reason, they belittled the concept or the idea of not only a deity who was responsible for creating all things, but actual faith in that deity. There was a decline in Christianity. Puritan zeal had turned into spiritual slumber. Christianity was more formal and less personal. Christians were discouraged at how wealth and rationalism dominated the culture, and they were misguided by their church leaders. And as dark as that season was for the church, it set the stage for the awakening that God was going to bring. There was a man called Jonathan Edwards who preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you think today that there are times where I offend you, I want to encourage you to go to YouTube and to listen to the transcript of that message. This message was so jarring that it influenced all 13 colonies. It was distributed wisely, or, or widely, excuse me, and it was accompanied by the preaching of George Whitfield. George Whitfield would preach out in open fields. You say, well, why did he preach in open fields? Because, because pastors who were unwilling to embrace this new thing that God was doing, were not willing to let him preach in their churches. And so, so they clo- the church closed the door to the preaching of the gospel and this awakening, and so he would preach out in the field, and there would be tens of thousands of people that would come out to hear this man preach. And as God was moving through these things and other things, what happened was this, Christians sensed their own emptiness, They sensed their own emptiness. They knew that they were believers in Jesus Christ, that they had been rescued and saved, but there was still something missing. And what God did is he birthed a craving for him in their hearts. I I just want to use the word craving intentionally here because that's what it was. That's what it was. As the messages were being preached, Historians say that people were so overwhelmed with conviction, they would come crawling down the aisles in repentance. So afraid, so afraid of being just a single degree off in their relationship with God, 
that great move of God broke through in a widespread way and all of the colonies were caught up in a massive awakening. The second great awakening began in 1790 and the key figure in that was Charles Finney. And the emphasis was on evangelism. Each of these awakenings are unique in their own sense. But this particular awakening was centered on evangelism. And so in the preaching of the gospel, there was this consistent encouragement for people to make a decision, for people to follow Jesus. In fact, Acts chapter 16, verse 31 was the key verse that really propelled this great awakening. And the verse is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that today? You're like, wait a minute, pastor, can it be so simple? Yeah, it can be simple and don't mess with it, okay? You know, we have a way of, of complicating the message of God. And when you and I get in the way of God and we start to complicate his, his message, what we find is the church begins to depart from the living God. No, this was the message that was preached and there were thousands of people who responded to it. There was such a unique work of God's Holy Spirit that those churches that were living in division from each other, those denominational barriers broke down and churches united together for the cause of the gospel. You know, I think uh, this particular moment in church history was very divided. There were denominations and there were tribes and that's not necessarily a bad thing, I'm not saying that, but they were so focused on the way that they did things that they would never partner or collaborate with another church because those dividing walls were so big. And as the Spirit of God was moving, what happened in this particular era was the church, even though there were differences, they set aside those differences and they were united together for the cause of the gospel. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for a season in the church, even here in Las Vegas, where we can set aside those, those differences, you know, that sometimes are useful and beautiful and, and you know, they bring color to the, to the church. And I'm not against that. But to be in a place where we can unite together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Second Great Awakening gave birth to the foreign missions movement in our country. Historically, what had been happening to this point was persecuted Christians were flooding from Europe to the New World. And there hadn't been missionaries that had actually gone back to other nations or, or to nations they'd never necessarily come from. But it was during this second great awakening, something happened. It's called the, the, the Haystack Awakening. There were four young guys. They were going to college at Williams College in Western Massachusetts. And during a thunderstorm, they sought refuge in a haystack. They wanted to get some refuge from the lightning. And it was in the haystack that they dedicated themselves to God. They said, God, you know what? If, please, if you save us, right? If you save us, we will go anywhere you want us to go. We will do anything that you want us to do. And these four men ultimately became the first missionaries that left these shores to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to other countries. As God began to do that, it was evident that there needed to be institutions to prepare these missionaries. And so educational institutions were started. You've probably heard of some of these. Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth, all of these colleges were birthed out of the Second Great Awakening with the intention of training mission, missionaries to go into the foreign mission field. Did you know that? 
The third great awakening was in 1857. This one's just so, so beautiful. It started with prayer meetings that were conducted by lay people. When I say lay people, I'm talking about people who are not professionally in the ministry, right? That, that's everybody here, pretty much. Just lay people who, who had a heart stirred to pray for God to do something special. And there was one particular person, a 48-year-old businessman, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear. He started a very, very small prayer meeting in New York City. And though it was small, after the stock market crashed, it began to grow. And within six months, it had gone from a band of 10 or 12 people to literally 10,000 New Yorkers praying on a daily basis. And in that third great awakening, look, I'm saying this to say, especially to you today, you're like, I'm no Edwards, I'm no Whitfield, I'm no Finney. Can you pray? Amen. Can you pray? Amen. You know, because this great awakening, history says that there were more than a million people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. From this great awakening, God wants to use your life. The fourth and final great awakening is one that we talk about all the time. It started in the 60s and 70s. It's the Jesus movement. You know, where God took, let's hear it, all y'all hippies. <laughs> we, we, know, we know you're a hippie because, because you have patchouli wafting from you this morning. Thank you so much for it. But listen, where God took a, a, a lost generation, it was a lost generation. The, the rest of the culture looked at the hippies and they said, lost cause, worth nothing, no value, no future, no value add to our country. And God took this wily group of people and, and they were born again powerfully and radically. And the, the, we're, we're beyond the tail end of that movement. But God did a mighty and powerful work in raising up young men and women whose lives were radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say all of that to say to you today that I do believe that the time is right for a fifth grade awakening. The time is right for a fifth grade awakening. You say, well, well, what are the signs? And I, I say, well, let's, let's look first at the condition of the church. Let's look first at the condition of the church. Christians talk about Jesus, but aren't sincerely experiencing him. Many Christians, right? I mean, this is a broad brush today, but as I look at the church in our nation, I think Christians talk about Jesus, but aren't necessarily sincerely experiencing him. Spirituality is more form than substance. People are more concerned about the role God is playing in their plans than the role that God plays or that they play in God's plans. In other words, it's God, what can you do for me instead of God, what are you doing because I want to, want to align my life to it. There is a reliance on worldly or former methods to grow the church instead of spirit-filled praying, preaching, and teaching. There's little concern for the lost. I've said this to you. I think maybe one of, the, one of the most significant signs that we are due for an awakening is the consumerism within the church. Look, as long as we can come and our felt needs are met, right? As long as we can come and feel a little bit better about ourselves. And that, I do believe, fundamentally is a characteristic of the church in America. There is little concern for the lost. And whether you want to admit this or not, the data is in Christianity is in decline in our culture. Christianity is in decline in our culture. And I can give you the stats for that. And so what does God say? God says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
We've had a growing burden for this over the years. I know for sure, for me, this has been just a, a process as God has been working this in my life. And, you know, a number of years ago, we had, we had an Awaken Crusade in Mazatlan. And, um, you know, we, we chose to use the word Awaken intentionally for our crusades because we've, we did, did believe, and we do believe, that God wants to bring an awakening not just in our nation, but God wants to bring an awakening in other nations. And so, you know, we had, we had this pretty significant outreach. We had thousands of people come. Thousands of people responded to the gospel. We really believed it to be the will of God because, you know, truly where God guides, God provides. And God provided and answered in a mighty way. And so we took another step. And we had an awakened crusade in Mexico City. And again, God opened the doors. And listen, in both of these cities, like if you weren't present to see it, let me just tell you, in both of these cities, there were very divided churches. And yet what we saw as we were seeking to serve these churches, what we saw is those denominational tribal barriers came down and the church, churches that were literally divided against each other. I mean, I remember a pastor's breakfast in Mazatlan. We had 200 pastors show up. And at the end of the breakfast, one of the pastors said to me, man, I can't believe they were in the same room together because they hate each other. Like they, and you're like, pastor, pastors don't hate each other. <laughs> pastors aren't human, are they? And, and, and listen, what we saw, what we saw was healing among pastors and leaders. What we saw was a uniting over the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we saw was like widespread, powerful demonstration of his, his gospel as people were born again and saved. And what we've seen is churches being planted and pastors and leaders raised up. We saw God do a mighty work. And then just a couple of weeks ago, I said to you, hey, listen, Ephesians 5.14, remember? Ephesians 5.14, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to be burdened for an awakening because burden precedes vision. We can have all these ideas about what God wants to do, but listen, none of them will come to fruition. I don't like that word, whatever, manifestation. None of them will be manifested until there's a real burden, until we are burdened in our hearts with what burdens the heart of God. And so every day, right, twice a day, you can pray more if you want. God, bring the awakening. God, bring the awakening. But listen, God, bring it right here. Bring it to me first, right? I pray that's your prayer. It's not just God spiritually resurrect the lost. It's not just God, hey, you know, fix the church. It's like, God, no, right here, right here first, because God, I know my tendency, I know that I can be spiritually complacent. God, I can be totally lazy. God, I can push off for tomorrow what you want me to do today and find myself five years down the road having never done it. God, having never done it and thinking somehow that my relationship with you stays in a static place when it doesn't. When it doesn't, all of that leads to a greater drifting from God and a deeper sleep. Listen, today you might not be totally asleep, but you might be on your way to sleeping, right? You're semi-conscious, you're semi-conscious. That still is not the place that God wants you. And so what we do is we pray, God, bring the awakening here first because, God, it won't happen in Las Vegas and it won't happen in our nation and it won't happen in other nations until I am and this church is totally awake to you. And that's the second thing that we pray. And that's the second thing. You know, today you're like, man, pastor, you're, you're on one today, you know. I'm telling you, this is the direction we're heading. This is the direction that we're heading. And I get it. I get it. If you don't like it, you can offer him to a different church. But this is the way that we're going. This is the way that we're going. So, 
so then we pray. Then we pray. God, then we pray. Well, no, we're not done. <laughs> then we pray. Then we're praying for our church. Listen, when's the last time you prayed for our church? You know, when's the last time you were pleading with God, you know, for, for him to do something special here? Look, I, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm a pastor. I get the grumbling and complaining all the time. You know, pastor, you changed the color of the building. How can you do that? You know, is it, I didn't get to vote on that. Nope, and you never will. So just don't worry about that. Don't worry about the color. You know, but this is, this is the way it goes sometimes, right? We can be so caught up in complaining about stuff. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. When's the last time we prayed? When's the last time we said, Holy Spirit, fall upon our church? And God, thank you, by the way. Thank you that we're all saved and that we're walking with you and we're bound for heaven. And then God, use us to reach the world with the gospel. Use us to reach the world with the gospel. There's been this growing burden. And there are some things that you're going to see this year that are in alignment with this burden. The first one is this. We are changing the name of our church from Calvary Chapel, Las Vegas, to Awake in Las Vegas. <laughs> I love you guys. I love you. Thank you. Group hug. Listen, we have, we have prayed. We have prayed a long time. We prayed a long time about this. And this is the reason we want our name to match our purpose. We want our name to match our purpose. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Are we still at Calvary Chapel? Yes, we are. Wait a minute, Pastor. Is the philosophy of ministry going to change? No, it's not going to change. But we want, we want to be more on fire. Yes. We, want to be, we want to have a sharper edge. Yes. We want our preaching to be more impactful. And so, listen, if God brings change like that, I will embrace it with all of my heart. So philosophy of ministry doesn't change. But listen, I will tell you this. I believe that we are living in the last days. I believe we're living in the last days, and this is what we ought to be praying. Jesus, before you come back for your church, and we know it could be any moment, before you come back, please, one final great awakening, one great move of your spirit before you gather us all up. The name Awaken is not, is not new to you. It shouldn't be foreign because this is what we've called our large-scale crusades. And so this is creating consistency across our platform. And we've had a large-scale crusade in Mazatlan. We've had one in Mexico City. We planned one in Brazil, and then COVID came. Um, God willing, you know, we're not giving up on that. But I want to tell you today, you're the second to hear it because I already told the first service, we are going to have an Awaken crusade in Tijuana, an Awaken event in Tijuana. So... We were down there just a couple of weeks ago, and this is the Chevron Baseball Stadium in Tijuana, and it sees 20 to 25,000 people, depending on the configuration, and we are taking steps by faith. Who knows how this will work out? God knows, uh, but we are taking steps so that we can have uh, an Awaken event in Tijuana in November, so November 2022. And the great thing about this is it's close, right? It's close. You can be a part of it. You can see firsthand what God is doing. And the third thing I want to let you know that uh, you're going to see over the course of this year is we are amplifying our church planting efforts. We're amplifying our church planting efforts. Um, and we want to really encourage you to be prayerful about your part in church planting because, listen to me really carefully, God's method of reaching the world with the gospel is the local church plant, right? God's method of reaching the world with the gospel is the local church plant. 
And so our heart is to plant awakened churches that share the same DNA, that fundamentally are working together to reach cities with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with his love. And so, so in, in, in every given city, and God's put a number of cities on our hearts, it's going to be one church, one city, one mission. We're not going to be operating independently from each other anymore. We're going to be functioning together as one body, believing that as there's unity in our service together, that God is going to reach cities with the gospel. So, so let me just wrap up. Thank you for your patience today. You know, you might be thinking, man, pastor, you know, name change, that's a real, real big thing. Um, it's not the biggest thing that I'm saying today. Look, that's a cosmetic thing. It's a cosmetic thing. The big thing today is that we are a church of spiritually awakened Christians. That's the big thing today. The big thing is that we're bearing a burden for our neighbors and, and the salvation for our nation, right? Because I believe we're at a crossroads, we are at a crossroads, and we are the ones who need to choose. We are the ones who need to choose. You know, I, I've just I've observed this whole situation in the Ukraine, and physically you see the manifest, manifestation of evil, right? You see such suffering, such, such suffering in the lives of, of civilians and children and neighborhoods being bombed. And you see, like, clear wickedness in this particular leader who's willing to do whatever he wants to do regardless of the cost as he's invading. And, and, you know, I say all of that to say I've also been inspired. You know, I watch the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian leadership, and I'm just telling you this is my point of view. Take it or leave it. But my point of view is this, man, the, the courage, the courage to take a stand and say not in our country. You know, it doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter how overwhelming the military difference might be. We are going to stand. And I'm, I want to say to you today, I want to wrap up with this, that what is true in the physical is true in the spiritual. What is true in the physical is true in the spiritual because there is a beast that's greater than Putin that's invading hearts and minds every single day. Every single day he is wrecking havoc in people's lives. And the question is this, is, is our church, are we going to say, not on our watch, not on our watch, enough is enough. Like we know how we want to live. And, and don't, don't look at me today with a blank stare as if you don't know what I'm talking about because 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says himself, if my people who are called by my name, right, if my people who are called by my name. What we need, what we need in this era, and listen, if the Lord tarries and church history down the road reflects on this moment of time, what will church history say about us? Look, I, obviously I have really strong convictions, and I know, I know what God wants to say about me, and that's what I'm going to live to, and I want to encourage you to take a step of faith and see what God will do. We're asking and praying that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our midst. And God, your word says that your Holy Spirit is like wind. And we pray, Father, please stand with me today. Please, Lord, we pray that you would move, that your spirit would move like a rushing mighty wind. God, that you would blow through this temple. God, that you would blow the dust and the cobwebs and the religiosity Away, God, that you would convict us where we have exalted the tradition of man to the commandment of God. We pray, God, that you would show us and convict us 
that your, the wind of your spirit would be rushing and mighty. It would shake not only this place, but, but he would shake our hearts. And Father, we know that your word says your spirit is like a fire. And we pray that your fire would fall upon us. We pray that your fire would consume the iniquity, that your fire would consume the dross, that when we lift our hands to you because of the power of your gospel and the fiery work of your spirit, our hands would be holy hands. God, when we speak your name, when we declare your word, that our lips will have been sanctified. God, that our lips will have been purified, that, that there would be a that there would be the sanctifying power of your Holy Spirit preparing us to speak your words of truth. And God, we know that your word says that your Holy Spirit is like oil. Oh God, would you saturate us? God, would you, would you dunk us deep into the oil of your spirit and that you would influence us in such a way that no part of our heart would be untouched? God, we want to be dripping with the presence of your spirit. God, we want to be soft and supple to you again. We want to be flexible and tender to the guidance of your spirit. God, we don't want to be like an old wineskin, hardened and resistant, annoyed when we're called out of our spiritual slumber. God, we know that your word says that your Holy Spirit is like water. And we pray that you would wash over our church. We pray that you would wash us and cleanse us and you would renew us, that there would be a new work. God, a new work of your spirit in this place. And Jesus, just like you said, that those who come to you out of their innermost being would flow torrents of living water. We pray that those, the, the rivers of your Holy Spirit would pour forth from us, O oh God, and that the lost, thirsty, wayward, dissatisfied, unconverted people around us would taste of what you're doing through our life and come to you in faith. God, would you grant to us a new anointing, a fresh anointing. God, would there please be not a one of us that would miss the good and great thing that you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.